I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are at the beginning of a new season in the church's year, in that weird way of timekeeping we call the church year called Lent. And that means for us church nerds that we are here at Crazy Faith Talk, we're starting a new series in our podcast here to go along with Lent. Uh, So we want to welcome you to this season. And even though Lent is not usually a particularly happy season, so it seems weird to say happy Lent, happy new series in the podcast, everybody. Um, We are starting a new series that is what, we're, what we hope will look at a theme that, that maybe fits with, with a, a focus in the season of Lent. Lent is often this time when we're called to sort of turn away from uh, the, the, the rottenness that we are pulled into that we sometimes call sin. Um, and we talk about the focus on Jesus going to the cross as the uh, way that we are saved from our sins. Um, but all that talk about sin sometimes becomes church jargon. Uh, honestly, and it's unclear what exactly does that mean. So we thought it would be helpful for us to do a series talking about what exactly do we think we mean when we talk about sin? What are we talking about when we talk about sin? And how is it similar to and maybe different from other modes of of thinking in our lives? And I I guess maybe to, to, to lay my cards on the table, I've been thinking about this a fair amount. I had a conversation with a woman in uh, one of the congregations I served not long ago, and she was giving me the overview of her uh, medical uh, situation she's in. She's got a, a handful of complicated symptoms, and she's given me the rattling off this list of all the different specialists she's going to see. Um, and she says, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to meet with a surgeon. He's recommending surgery. I'm going to the cancer doctor. They're doing these tests. I'm going to see the rheumatologist. They're doing this. They're doing blood tests, like whatever she's dealing with every different specialist has a a take on. And of course, like the old saying goes, so the guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The surgeon takes a look at her symptoms and go, oh, I can fix this by cutting you up. And the doctor who's a cancer specialist like, no, this sounds like this is a kind of cancer. We'll give you cancer drugs for it. That the, the way you assume or approach what a problem is affects your way of what you think the solution is or how you help the solution. And for all the different ways the Bible talks about what sin is, it's it's pretty much generally a negative. It's a problem. And the question is, how, how do the different biblical voices think about um, what, what sin really is, what it's all about, and then what it means to say Jesus somehow saves us from it? So we're going to be taking a look, kind of like we've done in previous Lens. We, we did a series once upon a time on different ways the Bible talks about the atonement, about what happens when Jesus dies on the cross and how that does something for us. And we talked about how maybe some people are only familiar with one way of thinking about it. But the more we dug in, we discovered, wow, the Bible really has several different ways of talking about it. And it's not that one is right and the others are wrong, but that they're held together as a chorus. It turns out the scriptures talk about sin in the same kind of ways, rather than just a single, there's one definition, there's a bunch of different ways the Bible talks about it. And uh, our theology is poorer if all we ever have is one metaphor or one way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. So the place we thought we might start then is what is often called like a forensic or courtroom or like a debt way of thinking about sin, right? What, 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 is that, what does that mean? Let's, let's start there. So it's the, it's the thought that sin is breaking God's laws or rules, and you therefore then need to be punished for breaking those laws and rules. 
this is uh, this is my definition of sin when I was growing up. Um, my grandparents were Southern Baptist, and so like this was the lens that they viewed sin. And you know, my my grandmother was my day like she she ran a daycare in her house, and that's where I spent a lot of time before I went to elementary school. And so therefore she was really big on rules for little kids, as you can imagine, because otherwise there'd just be chaos in your home. And um, so like she was, she was pretty strict. And I, I remember lying once when I was like probably four and you know how four-year-olds just can't lie well? <laughs> but one of the commandments is you shall not lie. And I just remember getting such a talking to about, you know, we don't fib and this is what a fib is and this is why it's bad. And what do you think your punishment should be, which you should never ask a kid back. So I was all like, just forgive me. <laughs> I won't do it again I promise and um it turned out my my punishment was I had to sit on the couch with no toys until my mom came to get me which was like fairly quickly like it wasn't like this was in the morning and my mom wasn't going to come until the afternoon it was probably more like my grandma knew that my mom was like walking up to the house but to me at four like I was like oh this is the worst punishment ever (laughs) Uh but that's because for my grandma lying is a sin and like you need to face those consequences so that you don't do it again and that Mm -hmm. it doesn't become a habit and um but yes sin is breaking god's laws or rules and then you need to face punishment yeah now i think like we may discover as this series goes along, kind of like we did when we talked about different atonement theories, that there's going to be a fair amount of, yes, this is true, and also where are their limits or where are their downsides, this is all we have. So where does the, where would the idea come from that sin is basically rule-breaking? Well, I mean, we could say, as, as your grandmother pointed out, it is a commandment among, you know, the Ten Commandments, and part of the Old Testament's way of picturing ancient Israel's relationship with God is in covenant terms with like rules and laws and a contract of, if you do this, here's the consequence. Here are my laws. If you break them, there are these penalties for them. So yeah, it makes sense that that would be a way we think about uh, how sin works. Are, are there other um, maybe uh, features of, of this way of thinking or um, elements about this way of thinking of sin that are helpful to note? Other things that come to mind? I think the thing I always struggle with then is what rules are yours to follow and what rules no longer seem to apply. Ah, Mm -hmm. so say more about that. So like there are, if you look at the entire Bible, which is a pretty hefty collection of written words, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of commandments, rules, laws Thing, procedures to follow like there's there's a lot there's more than just the 10 commandments right and as christians there's a lot of rules in the old testament especially that we don't follow right like we don't keep kosher mm-hmm. and you know i think that there's probably some small groups of christians who will try to keep kosher but like, it's generally something that we don't do. Like we don't do the dietary laws. Like we eat 
shellfish. We mm-hmm. eat cheeseburgers. Like we don't keep kosher. Right. And so along somewhere along the line, we decided that these rules don't apply to us as Christians. Right. Right. And we could go further and say we didn't just invent this on our own, but there's a lot of stories in the Gospels where Jesus himself seems to be confronted with people say, here's the rule. Oh, teacher, what are you going to do about the rule? And Jesus will either directly seem to flaunt it or say, yes, I know you've heard this was what was said, but I'm telling you this and either sharpen the rule or loosen the rule. And then he'll also hand to his disciples words like. Uh, whatever you bind will be bound on earth and whatever you lo- like, as if to say, you guys get the power to tighten the rules or loosen the rules on things. And that messes with our sense of sin. If our sense of sin is there are these eternal unchanging rules, you follow them to stay in God's good graces. And when you don't follow them, uh, a, a penalty must be paid by someone so that the way rules change is, is something we have to figure out or address, especially if our sense of sin is there are these unchanging eternal laws and rules that cannot be broken without penalty. Are there other things that come to mind for you, Erica, when you think of picturing uh, sin as the breaking of rules? So I think, and this is kind of half-warm thought, so stick with me here and tell me if I'm being a heretic. Um, but when we see sin is breaking a rule and then there's a punishment to go with it um, you know if you think of like laws you break the speed limit you pay a fine mm-hmm. you murder somebody you go to jail mm-hmm. those are very two very different penalties mm-hmm. for two very different broken laws yeah and i think when we view sin purely in this way we can tend to view sin in the very same way you know and we level it oh so there's okay. like little sins and then there's big sins and there's the kind of medium sins and um it and some people might be okay with it some people you know not so much but like for me i see sin as just you know level across the board yes some might have bigger consequences Uh uh-huh but a for me a sin is a sin is a sin so so that's Go ahead. My grandma would agree with you. Like that was part of her big thing about don't lie is because, you know, lying like there's for her, there was no such thing as little sins. Like Mm -hmm. it was all sin. It was all the same in God's eyes. So like she was very much of the opinion that like, okay, murder. That's a very obvious, like we, we don't do that. Um, like it's, it's bad. Um, so she would encourage me as a little girl to imagine the horror and the like very obvious like no of course we wouldn't murder our friends like that should be the attitude that I would have about all sin mm-hmm. so oh no of course I wouldn't lie like that's unthinkable why like that you would think that I would have the capability of doing that like um because for her she believed that God sees all sin as equally bad which is like that horrifying like i can't believe you just did that kind of horror bad thing yeah yeah and i think this this tension and it seems like you're you're each coming at this from different angles that that this is part of the the challenge of this mode if this is all we have to think about sin is that on the one hand um it can be really, really dangerous to do a certain grading of sins because, man, we're all tempted to grade the ones that we do lightly and to grade mm-hmm. the ones that other yeah. people do more harshly. Uh, but on the other hand, having a uniform, yeah. all sin is equally bad has a way of then saying, so wait a second, I, um, you know, uh, 
forgot to confess to my uh, mom that I took an extra cookie from the yeah. cookie jar. That's as bad as committing double homicide. No, somehow that seemed like so. The, like somehow the there there is something that it that there's difference across different individual actions that we might do, and yet there's also something that's got to be uniform. And your point, Erica, that in in the the actual legal world where crimes are committed, we have a whole wide variety of different kind of sentences that are passed depending on what you've done. Um, maybe this is a point to also add into the hopper that uh, related to the idea of sin as rules that you break uh, is the idea sometimes we get from the New Testament of sin being like a debt that must be objectively paid. Jesus uses this kind of language in the Lord's Prayer too, right? The forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, puts the language of this is like a debt that is to be canceled. And we'll use that kind of imagery in his parables as well, that if, I've, if uh, I've been forgiven of a great debt, I should forgive uh, my neighbor when they sin against me as well, which again suggests there are offenses, you, you're in debt, and therefore someone has to pay this amount, just like a penalty has to be paid if you've committed a crime. And even there, there's big debts, there's little debts, um, and that can that can complicate the way we think about sin as breaking of rules or of, of infractions that require repayment. And I think that especially with the thinking of it as a debt, my like, and I'm going to keep coming to my grandparents to this episode sure. because this is such their, the worldview that mm-hmm. they had. Yeah. Um, because they were Southern Baptist and they very much believed in, you have to be born again to be saved. Like you have to specifically ask Jesus to come into your heart and save you. That for them, it was that moment that erased all their prior debt Uh from sin. And then from that point onward, you would have to try to live a sinless life because God erased those debts once. Are you really going to ask God to do that again? Right, like, right. like that was kind of like their, their like thinking is, I remember that once I, in their mind was saved, I had to be held to an even, even stricter standard Yeah, because like, if you sin again and ask, you know, yeah. I think it, a little bit was like, you know, are you going to really crucify Jesus? Jesus again because yeah. you couldn't help yourself and lied in this situation yeah. like yeah. or you you know didn't honor your mother and your father in the ways that you should have like yeah yeah you know it, it was very much like after you've been saved definitely don't sin after that yeah well you know it seems to me too while it can be easy to go to the reference of uh you know the, the generation of maybe grandparents or just a few generations back the much earlier church wrestled with this there was a time in like 300 s 500s and through the medieval church where for some people the conventional wisdom was you want to put off getting baptized until you're on your deathbed because mm-hmm. once you got baptized yeah your whole lifetime record was cleansed but if you sin to after death my goodness what are you going to do to get that sin off your record and again it was very much a punishment centered sin is like a crime of breaking of a rule and 
to become a Christian was to get your previous record expunged, but any new sins, now there's new debt or new punishment that has to be racked up. And so you get stories of people, you know, like, uh, I think the story is Constantine on his deathbed finally was, was baptized. He had like kind of flirted with Christianity for a while, um, but didn't officially get baptized until he's on his deathbed for that, because that was the thinking of the day in, in some circles was uh, that if you, if you got baptized that white, and again, that was their way in, instead of the getting born again kind of thing. And instead of uh, you had to pray the prayer to invite Jesus into your heart, you had to have the water ceremony happen. And that cleaned off your sin record. Again, all that assumes that sin is like a list of like a criminal record. Here's the things you've done wrong or it's a financial record. And if you do the bad things and then get them expunged from Jesus through your baptism or the prayer or whatever, then your past is clear. But just, you know, keep your nose clean in the future. That also raises a really important point I think we're going to come back to throughout this series, and that's that this model of sin, sin as breaking of individual rules, has a way of making us think that sin is reducible to individual bad actions or choices. Mm -hmm. And again, the Bible sometimes talks in that language, and that's that rules are helpful for individual actions. Don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't worship a golden calf, what have you. But there's other ways we'll discover the Bible talks about sin, and sometimes it's bigger than just you did this one bad act, you're going to hell for it, and more like it's you're already captive to a power that's bigger than yourself. We need to be set free from something bigger that is beyond our control and beyond our individual actions as well. And I think that's, that's again, a, a place where this model of sin, uh, if it's all we have, it, it doesn't know how to think about that or doesn't know how to talk about that. Maybe that would, this would be a helpful point for us to turn and say, okay, if people get the idea, okay, sometimes the Bible talks about, sometimes Christian theology thinks about sin as individual rules that get broken, individual debts that need to be paid. What are downsides or what are weaknesses if this is all we had? For all the positives or reasons we might have this, what are, what are some uh, yellow flags or red flags if this is our only way of thinking or talking about sin? I think that there isn't room really for some big picture problems in our society. Oh, okay. Like okay. racism, sexism, really any of the isms. Um, because it, like, all of those things aren't necessary, like, there are some, like, individual actions that you could do that can really hurt others that yeah. fall in the category of racism or sexism, but then there's a lot of, like, subconscious biases and, like, subconscious things that we do because of the way that we've been shaped and molded by our society. Mm -hmm. And if this is the only way we view sin, it would be very easy to go, oh, I'm not racist because I've never called anybody the N-word, or I'm not mm -hmm. sexist because I've never treated so-and-so um, in this stereotype. You know, like, there, there isn't a whole lot of room to explain how we operate within these systems yeah. even without meaning to even without being malicious yeah. um, because it doesn't fit into like oh sin is an action of uh, breaking of God's law yeah. especially when God's law didn't really ever think to put into the bible somewhere of hey don't be racist don't be sexist right, right. it's interesting too how we then uh, again, take this sort of individual action kind of way of thinking about sin and individual and sin is like debt. And we sort of bracket out or forget that sometimes the Bible's way of talking about debt is like, 
there's collective forgiveness because as a whole society, we need to reset things. Like we, we Western American Christians have a hard time with the idea of Jubilee of what do you mean you're going to cancel people's debt? That's the a debt. We, we sort of treat debt like it's a moral failing. Like if you're indebted, it's your fault. Like it's a sin, like you've done mm-hmm. something wrong rather than, well, wait a second here. Is it possible that beyond your control, you got stuck with medical bills that you have to repay? Or is it possible you got stuck with student loans and everybody told you you need to take out at some point? Or is it possible you got stuck with having to manage your parents' bankruptcy or like the, the Bible did have ways of resetting corporately um, and didn't necessarily see debt as a moral failing. But yeah, we end up with this kind of uh, inability to talk about corporate things or things that we are captive to that we didn't choose, but are trapped in and then become complicit uh, participants in, huh? I think that you're, you raise a really good example, Sarah, about like maybe a, a, a case study about things like racism, that it's really easy to say, I'm not racist because I'm not a member of the Ku Klux Klan, or, uh, you know, I uh, never owned slaves, and therefore, I cannot be affected by racism, whereas like, wait, it's more like it's in the air you breathe, you know, it's more like uh, it, it's in the water, it, it's, it's something that affects everything, and the ways that we participate in that without challenging it make us complicit in it. And a, a notion of sin is just individual actions that are bad. It doesn't have a way of, of dealing with that or addressing that or even diagnosing it. Are there other um, possible weaknesses or downsides or yellow flags if our only way of thinking about sin uh, is reducible to individual bad actions or deaths on a ledger somewhere? Well, to go back to see what you're talking about like in church history and Sarah about your grandparents and that idea like once you are saved then you cannot you know you shouldn't sin anymore it takes away grace yeah for me yeah, yeah. like that's a huge like removal of grace because then it's like I have to be that perfect person I can do no wrong I should not do no and it puts all the onus on me right rather than saying that there is grace for when I do make mistakes right um so that, yeah. that for me is huge. And it kind of suggests too, to me then that it assumes that we on our own have the sheer willpower to mm-hmm. always will correctly. Uh, and that we just got stuck with a, you know, a bad criminal record, but we know how to behave well when maybe part of the problem is we don't know how to will well in a new way. We don't know how to love people rightly or mm-hmm. act rightly toward one another. And part of what it is to be set free is to be given a new way of living. Like I think, how much of ancient Israel's wilderness experience was how to unlearn the bad patterns of being enslaved in Egypt and the model of Pharaoh oppressing them all the time. Um, And that if all they did was just get plunked in a new land without a new set of ways of living, they would have done this to themselves all over again and started, you know, someone would have made themselves Pharaoh in two weeks. Um, that, That this approach assumes once, okay, once your past record is expunged, you're on your own, don't mess up because... Uh, you know, there's, there's no, like you say, there's no grace for you there. And that assumes we've got the power on our own to, to climb up or to climb out of the pit we're in. I want to toss something out to you both and to, to get your input. One is um, when we think about a debt being paid, in a sense, it doesn't matter who pays it for me as long as it gets paid, right? So like if I owe a million dollars and I don't have a million dollars and some wealthy benefactor says, I shall pay on your behalf. Um, If part of my problem is I'm a compulsive gambler and I keep getting myself into more debt, nothing has changed. I'm just going to find myself in trouble all over again. Um, And similarly, if we conflate that with um, 
someone else has to pay a penalty, we end up with sort of a, a sense that what Jesus is there for is to leave me unchanged as a jerk who's going to continue sinning and harming other people, but he just suffers so that I don't have to. That, like Then you end up with that sort of model of the atonement that's basically God needs someone to suffer, and it doesn't matter who it is as long as somebody pays because God needs to be, like almost like God's bloodlust needs to be sated. God needs there to be suffering in order to deal with sin and so Jesus is willing to do that for me, and I'm still I still get to be a jerk. That something seems like mm, something can't be right if if that's our if that if that casts both God as a monster who requires uh, bloodlust and sacrifice that way, and I'm still allowed to be a jerk. That seems something has gone wrong there. I want to toss this out then for you as well. Um, I don't know if either of you are fans at all of the uh, classic Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all those kind of things like that. Um, there's this. Uh, piece in in the the line that was in the road road which is chances are if anybody knows any of the narnie books that's the one you know um where uh you know th- there's there's the character edmund who has betrayed his siblings and the evil white queen says to aslan the lion who's sort of the, the the christ figure uh you know the deep magic says all traitors are mine and uh aslan has to say back uh don't cite the deep magic to me i was there when it was written like that aslan the christ figure says there are these rules that require traitors go to the white witch and they are controlled by the white witch that there are these rules that like even God has to follow. And that later on you get in the Narnia books, there's this language of the deep magic and the even deeper magic that was formed at the beginning of creation. One of my concerns is if, if our theology of sin suggests that there are rules that God has to follow, it suggests that there's like a higher authority that even God is subject to. And if our whole notion of sin is there are rules, but there are rules that makes it kind of sound like even if God wanted to help, or even if God wanted to forgive, sorry, there are the rules, which ends up making it sound like that God is not the supreme authority, or God isn't the one inventing what, what the rules are, but there's authority God, and that, to me that seems again like, I think the wheels are coming off if, if we have to imagine there's a deep magic that God has to obey. I, I, I don't know, help me think this out. Yeah, because... There, when I was in college, I think I was in a religion class and we were posed the question of, um, you know, if God is all powerful, could God lift a mountain? And the answer is yes, of course, if God is all powerful, God can lift a mountain. And then the follow-up question was, can God limit God's self to not lift the mountain? Mm -hmm. And it it was one of those like you know I was in college and I was like oh what a I I don't know, um, <laughs> and so so like yeah that that coming back to that question of can God limit God's self, and would God limit God's self? You know can does God hold God's self to a set of rules? And like, why would God do that? And I don't really have good answers for any of these questions. Um, In a a way, this kind of reminds me of, um, there was a a moment in the early Protestant Reformation when uh, Luther was writing about, at, at that time, the question was whether the Pope had authority over the souls in purgatory. You have to imagine that there's a world where there's a purgatory that you could go to if you were uh, 
uh, a person of faith, but still had sins on your permanent record. And at the time, the conventional medieval thinking was the Pope can uh, give you an indulgence to get you out of purgatory early, but he was charging money for it. You know, you, you pay money for the indulgence and then the Pope would spring you free to be crude about it. Forgive me for the crudeness. Um, but at one point, Luther asked, well, wait a second. If the Pope has this power to set people free from purgatory, why doesn't he just do it for everybody out of the goodness of his heart? Um, why doesn't why doesn't he just forgive? And in some ways, this becomes a, 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 a a case study for thinking about God's forgiveness as well. If, if our sense is there are these rules, God, ha- God must demand payment. That makes it sound like God's not really allowed to forgive. Somebody has to pay somewhere. And if God, if nobody pays, the rules aren't satisfied. On the other hand, if uh, you don't have to have the rules, then why does just God forgive everybody? You're left with this sort of a, which is it? Which way is it? And if our, if our understanding of sin is reducible to there are rules and they got broken, you're, you're kind of stuck at an impasse. You're going to end up with one of those isn't going to make sense. Either God has to abide by rules that God didn't pick, or God has the power to forgive, but doesn't recklessly forgive everyone. What do you do with that? And I think our future episodes are going to unpack, well, maybe it's because sin is more than just rules that got broken or debts that got incurred. There's relationship that needs to be restored. And relationship requires both, I'm setting aside the past, but also how do we build up the future? Or how do we, you know, and, or sin will discover, is sometimes talked about like disease that requires healing and cure rather than just like a, a you know, wishing away of a medical bill. Um, and I think if, if we only had this idea of sin as rule breaking or debt incurring, we're left imagining a God who is either stuck with rules that God didn't pick or that God chooses the rules and says, sorry, you're in debt forever. Oh, you sinned after you got baptized or you sinned after you got saved. You're back. You're back on my hell list. And we're, we're, we're left with like really bad alternatives. If our only way of thinking about sin is rules that got broken. Maybe we could also say too, this is going to set up a question about what it means to say that Jesus saves us too. That if, if our only understanding of Jesus is, or if our only understanding of sin is these are debts that have to be either repaid or satisfied or who knows, maybe forgiven, we reduce Jesus to, he has nothing to offer us other than just he's capital. He's, he's payment. His, his death is helpful because it pays off my debt in a way that's an infinite amount of payment that individual sheep or goat's blood could only do small payments on. And again, you kind of find sometimes some theologians who go in that route of sheep and goats are fine for little sins, but our infinite sin is so big and so powerful. We need an even bigger sacrifice. And it doesn't matter what Jesus said or did or that he loves us or not. It's just his blood is worth enough to pay out that sin debt and a bloodthirsty bank collect debt collecting God requires satisfaction. That kind of, again, skews our sense of who God is. Okay, so we've probably given a good overview on how this picture of sin works. For folks, this is probably your most familiar way of talking about it, but we're going to explore in these coming weeks other ways that the scriptures talk about sin, as well as how the Christian faith talks about sin. So we hope you'll join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.